You're tuning in to the TV Campfire with Caitlin McFarland and Emily Gibson, co-founders and co-executive directors of ATX Television Festival, aka TV Camp for Grownups. This episode is part of our series of special releases recorded live at ATX Season 7. To hear our original The TV Campfire series, please scroll down to episodes 1 through 5. So this week's Season 7 panel release gets a little insider baseball, which we kind of love. Demographics, viewing habits, content consumption, the bold type. Okay, now you have my attention. This conversation is about the bold type. Good. But it's also about Freeform as a whole and the host of other forward-thinking shows that have really solidified it as a network for inclusive, entertaining, and a genre-bending series. It's also about who those shows are for and how they're finding their audience, and what it means to be a successful program for that coveted 18 to 34 age group, particularly when that group now includes two different generations, millennials and Gen Z. Remind me again, what are we? Ageless. (laughs) You know what? Yes. (laughs) And question, if I watch freeform shows, does that mean that I will always be in that 18 to 34-year-old age range? I believe so. It also may mean you're a vampire. You know, I believe they do have a show with vampires on it. I think that they probably do. And mermaids. Oh, yeah. And superheroes. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, kids going to college. I was going to say, and badass ladies. Yes. All of the things. I do have to say, there are a number of freeform shows that I really love with my whole being. I agree. And I would even say that... I have been watching since it was ABC Family before it made the shift, which a big part of this panel is talking about why they made that shift and what they're going after. But, I mean, I was watching Greek and Bunheads. and Did you watch Kyle XY? I did not, but I've heard very good things. I loved Kyle XY. And guess who was one of the main writers on it? Who? Julie Pleck. No. Yes. ATX advisory board member and... Also write shows about vampires. Oh, see, full circle. <laughs> full circle. Love when that happens. <laughs> Not a freeform show. Her vampire show. Nope. Sorry. Different um, one. But no, I mean, I think that the shows for freeform now specifically, even more so than before. I mean, we often, spoiler alert, if you don't know Emily, all things young adult are in her wheelhouse. Oh, yes. Um, but I think what they do really well now is do shows that like are beyond the 18 to 34. I think the majority of the shows on them, you can watch like, Parents and kids can watch them together. College kids can watch them. I mean, I'm above this age demographic now, and I love watching The Bold Type and Grownish. Those are phenomenal shows, as well as The Fosters, which sadly just ended. However, they're about to have the spinoff. But I look at The Fosters and what The Fosters had on that show from the number of sexualities, ethnicities, uh, major topics from immigration to obviously the foster care system to abortion episodes to mental health. They dealt with so many wonderful things on the show or handled these in such incredible ways. And at the end of the day, it was very parenthood-ish, if you will, that it all came back to the family. And it all came back to the loyalty and the love that this family that came together in completely different non-traditional ways Um Really, them gathering around the table and being there for each other is the heart of it. Which I think that could potentially be even across most, if not all, of their shows. It's similar with the bold type. It's always coming back to these girls and this solid female friendship that is never threatened with them being backstabby. You know that they're going to show up for one another. You even see that their mentor, the editor of the magazine that you could see put in a position of like maybe wanting to keep the young kids down and like see it as a threat, really is there to help them along that's one of the things I also love about Grownish is you have these completely different characters mm-hmm. that are now in this new phase of their life. It's them starting college. And it shows, as the other shows, you kind of like drop in as the family is already formed. Grownish is about when your college friends become your family for those four years. And it's so fun to watch because there are a lot of mistakes being made. And there's a lot of flubs and a lot of not really backstabbing, but just 
you're not always your best self in those years. And they're learning to forgive each other and work through it in a way that, you know, we can still learn as adults. We absolutely can. And bringing it back to the panel a little bit, I think what you'll hear from these people who are Freeform's top showrunners, a programming executive, and a network president, who are all incredibly interesting people with unique perspectives on Freeform and the changing business of TV. But they're really going to shed a light on that insider baseball side of TV of what makes it a Freeform show and what they're trying to do and who their audience is and how it has changed over the years. And I just, I think that this representation of the panel is great. It is a very ATX representation indeed. And it absolutely is. So pull up a log, get comfy, and settle in for this special TV Campfire edition of Freeform's Evolution of Millennial Programming, moderated by Entertainment Weekly's Samantha Heifel. How are you guys doing? Oh. I'm Sam Heifel from Entertainment Weekly. I am a little bit obsessed with Freeform, so I'm very excited to bring these people out and talk about the amazing things that this network is doing. I want to start with the man at the top. We've got the president of Freeform, Tom Ashheim. Next up, we've got the EVP of Programming and Development, Carrie Burke. Executive producer of a little show called Siren, Eric Wald. The executive producer of The Bold Type, Amanda Lasher. Executive producer of Famous in Love, of something called The Perfectionist, I'm Arlene King. Mm -hmm. And her amazing boots. <laughs> and last but not least, executive producer of The Fosters and Good Trouble, Bradley Bredewick. Yeah. All right, how's everybody doing? So good. <laughs> so great. Yeah. Um, I want to start with Tom, since this is the freeform panel. I want to talk about the very kind of decision to rebrand, to launch freeform, kind of what went into that and what you guys were kind of hoping. Like, what was the goal of that? <laughs> you have to flick it on, I think. There you go. Ooh, oh, that's better. Okay. Hello. <laughs> So a couple of years ago, we had this great business at ABC Family filled with programming that targeted young people that uh, we loved, but we had this name that seemed to not imply where the direction of the channel was. And so we had a kind of mismatch between our sense of self and what we knew was the great strength of both our audience and our programming, and we wanted them all to kind of get together. And so we changed our name. It reflected, as you just saw, sort of the attitude and direction that we were hoping to find. And, a little forward is kind of what we stand for. It's about the journey of the people that we serve, and it's also about, we hope, the stuff that's underneath all our programming that we believe makes society move a little forward, too, and makes us really happy. Yeah. Were there any <laughs> names you thought about <laughs> but discarded? We went through like 14,000 names. It was really dizzying and upsetting, so I can't remember all the names we discarded. The one I loved, and I know that Carrie loved too, that we couldn't do because legally it was impossible, was Alice, as in Alice going through the looking glass, and it was owned by somebody somewhere, and so it was impermissible, but it made us giggle, and there was a great title treatment, and it will never be, but that's okay. We love Freeform now. Well, for Carrie specifically, what is it that you guys look for in programming, just in general, when you're looking at you know, the new slew of shows, whether it's a good fit for Freeform, what is it that really pulls you in about something? You went on a little secret. <laughs> um, we have a um, an internal filter that we use um, when uh, we talk about what we're looking for. Um, and at one point, our head of uh, casting and talent, Elizabeth Boykevich, who's been there since ABC Family Days, um, framed it and put it in my office, and it sits behind my desk. Um, and it's cool shit for baller women. <laughs> That's what we look for, because <laughs> we figure cool shit 
um, for baller women is also going to appeal to men because we don't intend to just appeal to women. Um, but if it's cool, it is relevant and forward and authentic. Um, and so that is our brand filter. That's, in a nutshell. I want that to be my filter, like, in life. <laughs> That's how I live my life now. Um, but for those of you, like, I know Marlene and Bradley, that have been with the network, you were there when it was ABC Family. You're obviously here when it's Freeform. Did, did you feel a change? Like, has it affected you at all? Yeah, I think you could, if you go back and you watch Pretty Little Liars and you see, I think it was when, it was right about when we made the jump, time jump to uh, five years later that we were Freeform at the same time. And you can see that... that I think there was a level of sophistication and edge to that those last two seasons that were reflected in the, the freedom of freeform. Yeah, when we were there early on, uh, they they preferred a more traditional way of storytelling and 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 a way of shooting the show as well. And we sort of were able to open up the show a little bit more once we became freeform, and they allowed us to, to be more free. You know, they really did, and so the storytelling really did evolve and mature at the same time. Yeah. What is that phone call? Just like, we're free from now, guys. Go for it. What? <laughs> it was a little shocking at first, you know, and, and we, we all had a big hangout um, where they presented the, the new title and, or the new name and the new concept of the network. And it was a lot to swallow at once, but, but we all went along for the ride and here we are. And it really fucking works. It like really works, which is exciting because as we move forward, we get to really dive a little deeper and tell the kinds of stories that we've always wanted to tell. Sure. Well, for Tom and Carrie, I kind of want, you've got a lot of some of your great shows up here. What is it kind of specifically about these shows that you feel like really works with Freeform? I mean, look at this group, right? <laughs> like <laughs> Murderer's Row of... Uh, uh, the great storytellers um, working in TV right now. Um, I think that we, you know, we try to serve uh, a young generation. And so that demands an authenticity, an inclusivity, um, and a relevance in the shows that we look for. And honestly, whether they're about killer mermaids or women working at a magazine or young people work uh, in PLL The Perfectionist, what'll come to you next year, which, you know, young people dealing with the um, pressures of a generation that has been helicopter parented um, or um, a foster family in a good trouble, two of those kids going and trying to make it on their own in the world. Um, the shows are always about something. Um, they, are, they don't just exist to entertain. They exist to shed light on issues um, that, that our audience cares about and to hopefully make the audience feel represented and cared for and seen. And, and that is really, that's, that's the through line to all of these great shows. And I would just add to that, which is um, it's one of my favorite things about all of those shows that Carrie's just describing. With the, the tape that we just did a minute ago, they talk about attitude and direction. It's proxy for direction is about things moving forward, meaning something, being about something. And attitude is a proxy for still having to be completely compelling and entertaining. Because you can go quickly into the, you know, the worthy but dull category where we're really happy about the ideas that we're talking about, but none of you want to watch. And what I think all these people do so masterfully is they weave together stories that are about something and yet you care so deeply, and maybe because of that so deeply, about the character, about the setting, about the plot, about all of the things that make the shows great. And that balance, I think, is what all these people do brilliantly, and it's why they're, it's why they're all here. Yeah. Especially the bold type. I'm such a huge fan. I really am. I am, too. I it's, am like, too. really, really damn good. But I like the yeah. Killer Mermaids, too. I'm a fan of Killer Mermaids. Yeah. Yeah. The Killer Mermaids is all, the show is on its face. It looks like it's about right. Killer Mermaids, but it's really about inclusion, mm -hmm. xenophobia, fear of the other, what we're doing to the planet. Right. Right. It's about so. It's also about female empowerment and and subverting a myth that um, that can that was seen, I think, frankly, as misogynistic for many many years, and turning it into one of female empowerment, which is why we fell in love with the show, and it felt like a freeform show. Yeah, yeah, and it, it is really fun for us to explore those themes that feel so relevant and meaningful, and then you get to do a lot of really cool mermaid stuff. So to Tom's <laughs> point, it, we we still know that you know. Our purpose is to entertain, but there's also a lot of stuff that we really care about and those themes that feel really relevant to what's going on in the world today. 
Yeah, I think that's the thing I love about Freeform is just when you think of it initially, it's just fun, it's just good entertainment, but you all are tackling, more so than a lot of shows I watch on TV, like these are the shows that are tackling really big issues. And you mentioned like you do have a very young audience, which maybe, you know, it's even more important for them to hear those issues. But for you all as storytellers, like do you often think, like is the fact that your audience is of a certain age, does that affect what you do and don't want to do? Does that affect your storytelling? For me, I always said uh, my, my rule in the writer's room for Pretty Little Liars, especially when seasons one and two, when the girls were in, in high school, was to write them like adults. I, I, we don't ever say, well, would a kid say that? So it's, we, we write them like adults, and they make adult decisions and adult mistakes and have a, the high stakes of an adult world, and that, that works for us. Of all the demographics, I think the millennial demographic is the one demographic that if you talk down to them, they immediately shut you out. They have no interest in returning, and we've, we really learned that. Like, do not talk down to this generation. They are so smart, and they are so capable of, of taking in so much, and they're very outspoken. And so take them along for the ride and, and tell the truth. Be authentic. And you can confuse them. You know, they, they, they like to solve the puzzle. Like, we, what we love about Purdue Liars, and, and we'll do the same with perfectionists, is we throw a lot at you and give you a lot to think about. So when you come back and watch the next episode, you've spent a little time thinking about it. And, and whereas I think other networks, I think this is a, fr a free form gift to us, is that they let us do that. Not many networks would. We learned a little from you in that regard with the new show, with Good Trouble, because we're, we're sort of telling story in a very untraditional way, where we're not sort of A to B to C. We're breaking up story and telling it in very kind of broken up segments, um, which we're really excited about. So the audience really does have to, it's a puzzle. They have to really pay attention, and we reveal things a little bit differently than, than normal. I also think to Bradley's earlier point, Millennials and Gen Z kind of have a bum rap as like living with their parents and bumming their HBO off their parents. <laughs> but the truth is, to me, it really is an activist generation. I mean, you look at Parkland, uh, there's that, that young guy from the Netherlands who has the Clean Ocean Initiative where he's literally come up with a plan to clean the plastic from the ocean. So they're not afraid to tackle these big issues and these big concerns head on and um, really empower themselves. No, I agree. I mean, that's been one of the gifts of the bold type is that the millennial audience, like, they're there for it. They want that, and they want that engagement, and they're really intelligent in thinking about these things. So I, it's actually like a huge gift to have that in your audience. Yeah. Oh, they are loud and proud. You know, <laughs> they really are, and, and, and it, it, it inspires us. Like, when we go online, when we go on Twitter, again, learned a lot from you in regards to Twitter, um, <laughs> how important it is to, to this new age of storytelling. But they're passionate, and the kinds of things that they're, they're drawn to and the kinds of ways that they express themselves really do inspire a lot of story on our end as well. Yeah, how is that for you all going, like, just Twitter now? Like, you're so, your fans are right there, you pose a question, you get a million answers. How has that changed, like, your job in terms of, like, telling the stories you want to tell? For me, it continues to be instant gratification, for one, and also sometimes instant, you know, depression. <laughs> But it's, you, you have this beautiful gift of knowing what's working and what's not. And, and, and we, we pay attention to that as, as creators and storytellers. So you'd be a fool not to. And I think what it does is give us a relationship with our fans that, that prior generations didn't have. And, and now it's almost, it's almost just expected. It's just the way TV works. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge theater geek. I love live theater more than anything in the whole world. In fact, if I could just do that for the rest of my life, I probably would, but there's no money in it. Freeform um, the musical. What? I said freeform the musical. I'm all about that. Let's talk later. Um, <laughs> But, but in a way, it's like we, we get to interact with the audience at the same time while the show is airing. So there is a little bit of an element of live theater in this new age of television, which, which I love. And I was trying to think earlier of like the shows that I had watched as a kid and the idea of like watching Fantasy Island and then being able to go on Mr. Rourke's Instagram feed and actually interact <laughs> with him and like, how did you feel about tattoo? You know, it's, just, it's, it's really a wild time. And, and uh, like Marlene was saying, it's a relationship now you have. It's not just you're broadcasting to them, you're actually interacting with them. Yeah. And it must be different just for you guys as like humans, because now you're like, they know you. It's like, this is a showrunner of a show. In the past, it would be like, you know, I don't necessarily know who the showrunner was of Chips. I'm trying to think of the, the nerds behind the computers. 
I think actually it's, 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 I think it's great because not just showrunners, but every department head on my shows has an Instagram account and a Twitter account and are on Snapchat. And so people are learning what a prop master does, what a set decorator Mm -hmm. does. It's what the production designer does. And it's, I think it's great. And it's opened up this, these generation, these new generations to, it's not just celebrity as in actors, right? That, that you get to see how, how it all works. Yeah. It's become about the art form, you know? It's not just, Why you're do you so say right. you everything more eloquently than I do? I don't. It's that live theater thing. No, I'm, I'm just totally fangirling right now, the fact that I'm sitting next to you. <laughs> Honestly, that's all it is. I love you. You're adorable. <laughs> well, I mean, I also want to touch on one of the things that Freeform has done is really put representation at the forefront, you know, of many things, I know you have like a female EP on every single one of your shows. I mean, can you guys talk a little just about like the importance and why you kind of made those choices to do that? Yeah, I think, I think a lot of it starts with Carrie, in truth. I think it's really part of her um, sense of how she approaches the world. But I also know as a practical part of her life and my life, it's the audience we serve. Right? These are the most diverse group of people this country's ever seen. And for us to be serving our audience with any degree of accuracy, we have to be inclusive across all the boundaries of inclusion. I also think, sort of speaking to the earlier point, this audience is activist and fierce and just does not understand because they are so capable of moving so much point of view through the sort of ecosystem of our world, why we are not all doing a better job all the time on just about any topic. And it's motivating, right? They're really demanding in a really healthy way. And I think it pushes us to make sure we're, we're keeping up. Well, that's behind the scenes, but also on screen. You all shows have done such a wonderful job. And are those conversations when you sit down to craft a show of like, all right, is that like one of the first things you talk about is here's like we need to make sure we have a good representation on the show? I mean, in in our case, we really wanted our show to be as grounded as possible. It's set in a small fishing village in coastal Washington, not the most diverse place in America. (laughs) And to the network's credit, they really pushed us to, to open up our minds to diverse options and it, it, it was an amazing process for us because we were just able to look at the best actors and it suddenly became colorblind and it just felt more modern, more current, and more accessible to everyone. Um, so it was really um, an eye-opening experience for us in the casting, which was great. Yeah. Well, I know, Marlene, you were talking a little bit in the green room about like when you first introduced Emily on Pretty Little Liars and that she was gay and like the flack you got from that. Can you speak a little bit to that experience? Well, we got flack from both sides, actually. We got flack from from sort of the the Christian right that, that you know, we had in the pilot, she, two girls kissed, right? Yeah. Uh, and then I got flack from the left because she was so beautiful and, and people thought, wow, you're, you're creating this bar, you're setting this bar so high that, that the young gay girls can't, can't get there and it felt unrealistic or something and I was like well we're equal opportunity pretty like gay or not she's going to have lashes like the rest of them and when she's going to learn to run in five inch heels that's how it works on Pretty Little Liars through the woods at night (laughs) always on Pretty Little Liars they only drive in cars during the day and they walk in the woods at night and we don't turn on lights in our houses at night either we're saving electricity but how has that changed for you now when you're sitting down to craft something like Famous in Love or The Perfectionist? How has that environment changed? Well, I think we have even more uh, freedom to, to explore. The pilot of The Perfectionist is going to blow you away, if I can toot my own horn. But there's a, a scene that I don't think you have yet to see on Freeform. Um, with, I'm not going to, I don't want to ruin the surprises, but it's, we've pushed the envelope even further and we don't think about it. We too think we're, we're a diverse cast. It, it, to me, it's Rosewood, Pennsylvania, and normally it'd be 80% white. It's not going to work out that way. It's whatever, you know, we're, we are more open than ever. And I feel like it's, it's almost like it's a conversation we don't even need to have anymore. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, that is part of it is like, it, it was so much of a thing before where we were talking about the 30-something panel and mm-hmm. about how it was such a big deal to have the, you know, the men kissing and you know, having men in bed together. And one of the lovely things about Kat and Adina and their relationship is that they get to explore their relationship as two women in love, but it's not, it does not define them. It is not 
the thing that is the front and central thing. It's just that it's two people in love, and that's, I think, a really nice thing, but it doesn't have to be their whole identity. Right. Yeah. And I love, it's funny, I knew I was doing this panel, and I was watching the bold type, and I think in one of like the pitch meetings, it was like, we need to target millennials. Mm -hmm. And I was like, is this, is this the writer's room? <laughs> <laughs> you guys, I feel like you have a very easy, like, a balance between what's on screen and what you guys are doing, and wonderful. Yeah, I mean, you know, for us, it's just like anything that sort of, if, if a topic comes up in the writer's room that sparks a debate and a big conversation, I mean, you guys know what it is. You're like, okay, wait, we're on to something here. We have to follow that thread. And that's what it is for us. Or just like, what's something that we really want to see that when we were watching TV, when we were younger, we didn't see or that we feel like the audience would, you know, would feel gratified seeing that. I mean, those are the conversations we're having all the time. Yeah. Well, and Bradley, you were talking about even getting the Fosters on air was a bit of a struggle for you. Yeah, I mean, when we originally um, came up with the idea, our agents, and they admit to this, said, don't even touch it. No one is going to buy that from you guys. Don't waste your time. And we just couldn't let it go. We just became so in love and obsessed with this idea of exploring this family built by two moms in love. And so we wrote the pilot on spec. We took it out to every network that would, you know, at least give it a read, and we got no's across the board. Um, and our agent said, see, told you so. Um, but then we didn't want to give up, and I had a friend who was working for Jennifer Lopez at the time, and I had done a little bit of research on her life, and I learned that she had a lesbian aunt who had uh, recently passed away. And I knew that she was very close to her aunt. And um, so I thought maybe this might speak to her in some way, shape, or form. So I sent it to my friend, and he read it and said, this needs to be told. And he gave it to her, she read it, she flipped out over it, and we decided to take it out together. And we got some interest, but really the only network that really showed a lot of love for it was ABC Family, now Freeform and um, they went all the way with it. So there is something to be said about if you believe in something and even though you know it might be a risky venture, still go for it and do whatever you have to do to package it, to get the right people on board, to, to get it seen and to get the damn thing made. Yeah. And so that's what we did. And if all else fails, call JLo. Mm -hmm. That's right, because <laughs> she's not busy enough. <laughs> Don't put away those marshmallows just yet. We'll be back with more after a quick message from our sponsor. So here's the thing, which, Kate, you know very well about me. 90% of my wardrobe is skirts and dresses because jeans are so hard for me to find. They just don't fit my body. They're not comfortable. Until, until now. Until now. But <laughs> honestly, like, Distilled came along and they ship right to me. I get to try them on in the comfort of my own home. And if they don't fit, then I get to send them back and for free, try a new pair and voila, actually found a pair of jeans that fit and that I love and that I want to wear as much as my skirt and dresses. Like, this feels like a miracle that just happened. Here's the thing. Like, sometimes you need to walk around for a little. Like, trying them on in a dressing room for, like, five seconds is not going to tell you whether or not you like these jeans. I got the Power Stretch black ones. The fact that they have the right amount of stretch, they truly do go all the places in my life. Like I can wander around the house in them. I can go to work in them. I can go to meetings in them. I can get on a plane with them. I mean, it's the truth. We transition from a lot of settings all the time, from meetings to recordings, to drinks, to hanging out, to definitely sitting on the couch and watching TV. And you want jeans that not only look good, but that are just super comfortable. I was very excited to wear these and I maybe have worn them a few too many times without washing them. And the best part, they're affordable. Like finding something that actually fits and actually looks good and that you want to wear that is within a certain price range is pretty miraculous. Yeah. The ones that I got were $85. And then on top of that, you get 20% off. So go to distilled, D-S-T-L-D dot com, and you can get 20% off your first pair by using the code TV Campfire at checkout. D-S-T-L-D dot com. You're going to find your next favorite pair of jeans. I do want to talk about for shows like Siren or like Pretty Little Liars, you're tackling very human, very relatable issues, but in very extreme like circumstances, not so realistic sometimes. And so is that, does that make it 
more difficult to kind of tackle those issues? Does that actually like help in a way? Do you guys find that you kind of have to strike a balance of like, this is a very human issue, but we're in this crazy situation. Is that like a conversation? For us, we, we definitely, Rosewood is, uh, Rosewood and now Beacon Heights, Oregon, is uh, a heightened reality, I'll say. But so for us, the rule was always to make sure the characters were real and relatable and their struggles are still human and relatable and relationship driven. Sure. Yeah, I mean, definitely that's our approach as well. You know, we first and foremost want to tell great human stories, um, and then we bring mermaids into those. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it's actually on some level easier because you don't feel like you need to be so heavy-handed and kind of cram it down people's throats. You can, again, sort of entertain. And, and in, in the course of telling this more heightened story, you can get some of these themes and issues across. And we really try to sort of look at it like it, it's our show is five percent supernatural but really it's a show in about this town about these people who are dealing with these extraordinary circumstances but to really play it in a very grounded way we feel makes it much more accessible well and i'll give credit to to freeform as well like pretty little liars would not make it on a broadcast network it would we we don't follow the rules we make up our rules and then we stick to those rules and and tom and carrie have given us the the privilege to do that yeah is there a story you guys are most proud of telling, or maybe something you fought the hardest for in your careers? I mean, the, there's an episode called I Do, and it was the end of the first season um, where our moms get married. And I'll just never forget that day because we were shooting the wedding on the very same day that the Supreme Court overturned Prop 8, on the exact same day. And so here we are in Video Village, literally the moms are walking down the aisle towards each other, and we get the news that this just happened. And so Peter and I just looked at each other, my producing partner, and like we were a mess the entire day. We could not hold it together, which is not a good thing when you're running a show. It's like your crew and your cast look to you to guide the ship, and we, 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 there were no words. There were only tears. But I'll never forget that day, and it's because we were on a network that allowed us to tell those kinds of stories. So, and our timing was pretty damn good on that show. Sometimes we would explore some stuff that literally happened within the same political week, you know, that the show was airing, which I don't know how that happened, but it did. Magic. There's no topping that. Yeah, I, I was like, no, I'm not following that. Sorry. <laughs> I think, I would say though, it's, it's less of a, a storyline, but I think just the way we dealt with Emily's sexuality on Pretty Little Liars, I'm very proud of that. It was really important for me that when she came out, because Pretty Little Liars is about friendship. It's about unconditional friendship. That's what the show is about. And I wanted to model for people how it could look. If, you're, if you come out to your friends and they accept you unconditionally, what a beautiful thing. And, and I still get letters all the time from young gay people who've had the courage to come out because of Pretty Little Liars. And that makes me really, I'm super proud of that. Yeah. I, I mean, this season there's a storyline with Kat um, dealing with her racial identity, which I'm really proud of. And we all worked really hard. We had so many conversations. And um, I'm really proud of that and excited for the fans to see that show. Yeah. And we broke ground with the first interspecies love story. <laughs> um, but but it, we, all, we, we were able to tell a story about a love triangle where it's not the conventional, you know, two guys or two women competing for the affections of the guy, that it can be a, a fluid triangle where all sides are connected and they're all sort of rise up as a result of the relationship, which um, feels really, you know, modern and, and uh, interesting to us. It's a thruple. <laughs> I like to think that that was on the vision board when you were like, what do we want out of freeform? Interspecies. <laughs> but Where else guys, could you do it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You guys do freeform. We have two spinoffs on this panel. What was it about, you know, the flagship shows that you guys were invested in and were like, we want, we want more of this? Well, there were hits. <laughs> There's that. Um, and there were shows that were deeply, deeply important to our audience. Um, and we didn't want to end, but for shows have a natural life and evolution. And, in, and when you're doing shows, particularly shows that have younger actors and they start to get light years beyond their, <laughs> the ages of the characters when they're you know, in their mid-20s and they're still playing high school characters. We, we start to have those conversations about, um, and actually both of these shows did, um, ended up doing a five years forward um, uh, narrative in order to sort of graduate 
the characters and the content to uh, where the where the actors were living um, once we became freeform. Um, but it was it just testament to um, the shows and knowing that they also have so much more story in them. You know, that even though the natural um, narratives of that, that 1.0 were coming to an end, there was more to tell. And so in, we, we plotted uh, w with each of them to figure out what that looked like and how to honor the original, but yet evolve the show to feel like it's something completely new. Yeah. Yeah, for you all, what was it that, because obviously you love the original show, it's your show, but in terms of creating something new but that still feels similar, what was it that kind of intrigued you that made you want to go for round two? Well, the show was a hit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the, the, the Pretty Little Liars world, and, and uh, like Carrie said, shows do come to a natural ending, and it felt like it was really the right time to end the show. And the idea of, of just trying to figure out that puzzle was very intriguing to me. Like, okay, how do we keep the mood and the vibe and, and honor Pretty Little Liars and its brand and yet come up with a brand new premise? So I, the challenge of that was, was really fun to me. But I will say once I sat down and I started to write the pilot and I got to write again for Allison and Mona's voice, I was like, yeah, we're back. <laughs> for us, um, I think it's twofold. It's the best job and the best place to work on the planet. And so, like, when we were given the opportunity, we couldn't say no just for that very fact. But the other thing is, when we started The Fosters, we were in a very different world at that time. You know, we were in the middle of the Obama administration, and things seemed to be moving in the right direction, where things were pretty on, on pretty good equality grounds. But now we're in a very different world, a very different space. And so we now get to tell these, stor these, these stories about 20-somethings, millennials that are going out into the world, and the odds just seem like they're against them. No matter where they turn, no matter where they go, life just feels a little bit more complicated right now and a little bit more impossible. And so we want to mature the show and mature the brand and go in that direction and really explore what it's like to be 20-something faced with a lot of shit. Yeah. There's so, I mean, just in the history of television, so many shows focus on that sweet spot, right? Like the 20-something. What is it, do you guys feel like, about that age that makes such good television? I mean, they're figuring, them, they're figuring their way, you know, through life. And it's like, you sp I think that you spend so much of your time in school, like, thinking about college, and, you know, and then, then as soon as you graduate college, you're just like, okay, I'm done with college, I'm going to start my life, and then you get there, and you're like, oh, this shit is real. <laughs> like, <laughs> nobody else is buying the toilet paper. Um, and then just, you know, seeing those stories and seeing the ways that the women handle it, I, I think is inspiring and... Um, and I, there's just a lot of great stories there because everybody can relate to that experience of your first day at a new job, it, no matter, and everybody's been through their 20s when they're trying to figure shit out. Even when you think you know you have it figured out, I just think it's incredibly relatable in a heightened space or in just, you know, or in a story about an assistant trying to figure out how to ask for a way to move to another job in her company. And so I just think it's, everybody's had that experience. Yeah. yeah. I think it's, I'll just say this, I think it's a time of firsts yeah. to, to support what you were saying. It's, it really is first job, first love, first heartbreak, first marriage, you know, first baby. There's so many firsts that happen in those years that um, just, and you know, we can go back to Shakespeare and look at those are, those, are, those are the ages of those characters. It really is the time in your life when you're transitioning from childhood to adulthood um, that is a universal, no, nobody can get out of it. <laughs> the middle swell. school of adulthood. Right. <laughs> The other, just if I could add to that really briefly, if you look at all the big heroic stories in the world, whether it's Star Wars or you, you pick them, it's almost always the age of the hero. And so there's all these obstacles and all these firsts. It's also the age where you are your most sort of potent. It's the age of heroes. And it's, you know, they're, always, they're facing a world that's really super hard because it, all these things are happening for the first time. But you are in your physical prime. You are able to actually shape the future of the world. It's the people who fight in wars. It's the people who protest in real life in addition to movies and television. I think it's... It's this incredible power married to this sort of incredible series of societal obstacles, and it makes for really great storytelling. I think also as someone who's not in his 20s anymore, 
Um, it, it, <laughs> it's a chance for me to go back to my younger self and like try to fix the shit that I didn't figure out back then. So that's interesting. I think that's why we watch. Uh-huh. Yeah. And everything is so heightened at that age. Do you remember? Like everything, like every phone call, every letter, every kiss, every breakup, everything just feels like it's the most extreme. And so it just really is the best place to, to tell a story. And, and we can all relate. Family. We've all been there. Yeah. Oh, I was just, and your friends are your family. And so it's like everybody wants to be in that space. I was going to, I was actually going to say, how often do you all pull from like your own experience in your choice, specifically with mermaids? How often do you pull from your, but in the writer's room, how well, often? I'll talk about Famous in Love for a second. Yeah. Like literally, I watched those girls become stars and I wrote down all their stories. And, and you see their stories, like they've called me, they're like, hey, that was me, you know, <laughs> don't do that. I'm like, nobody knows it's you. Right. <laughs> Until now. They do now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but is that in the writer's room? Are there those conversations of like, oh, when I was 22, I did this. Great, let's write it. Oh, yeah. All the time. <laughs> that's all we do. It's like a, it's like a nine-hour therapy session, you know? It's, that's, that's what you do in a writer's room. You just throw out all your crap, and it all ends up on the whiteboards. It's crazy, but it's... You know, it's very therapeutic. Do, we do this thing where we, it, we call it Strawberry Patch Lane. Like, like we'll think this idea is great, and we're like, oh my God, it's so good. So we're laughing so hard, and then we're like, okay, is it Pretty Little Liars or Strawberry Patch Lane? Which is like, it's too heightened even for Pretty Little Liars. <laughs> <laughs> what is too heightened for Pretty Little Liars? There are aliens? I don't know, flying pigs. I don't know. Like, you know like, we've come up with some doozies, I promise you. Oh, that's amazing. All right, well, I want to make sure we get to any questions you guys might have. So sure, yeah, let's see. Yes, they couldn't be here today. Yeah. <laughs> now, one of the things I we're most proud of is um, uh, we have 60% of our episodic directors are female, LGBTQ, or people of color. Half of our uh, episodic writers are female, LGBTQ, people of color. Every single one of our series is executive produced by a woman. I tell you, we we have launched we launched the careers of probably almost ten uh, African American women as directors on Pretty Little Liars. We're very proud of that. Um, our co EP Brian Holman is a black writer. My assistant, who will be going up into the room very soon, also is a is a black woman. So we're very proud of the fact that we're we're bringing these people into our rooms and we're we're lifting them up and it's working out great. Yeah, there's tremendous diversity in the room, and also, I mean, hearing you speak, we all sort of approach it as uh, taking these writers and teaching them how to be eventual showrunners, and Freeform's been incredibly supportive of that, and letting us, like, uh, have the lower-level writers learning about all the different steps of becoming producers so that they can become the future showrunners. Oh, yes. They're so young. Most, most of our room is they're in their 20s, 20s to 30s. And because we were a show about a multi-culti family, it's, we're surrounded by a multi-culti cast, crew, and writing staff. And it's, it's a very important element to the show. And also, I, also on the flip side of that, too, we've also had directors and writers who are older as well. Yeah. You know, it's, just, it's that full spectrum of, of perspectives that makes the show interesting. Yeah. For us, our, our younger, like our support staff, our writers assistants and, and, um, our, and writers PAs even have a voice in our room. It's, it's, you know, they're empowered to speak up and, and pitch ideas to us. Anybody else? Let's go. We can go right here. We have a mic now. Um, this is for Tom and Carrie. Is there a show that sort of got away that you feel like would have been the perfect um, complement to your current programming or in the past, perhaps maybe Sweet Fishes? Or... <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. I see you. Okay. We would not have passed on Sweet Vicious. <laughs> it did not come our then? way. Yeah. yeah, we loved that show. We were stalking her. Um, and Aisha was on it, and we knew her from Chasing Life. Um, I will say for me, uh, Riverdale. Um, yes. I love Riverdale. My 14-year-old over there loves Riverdale. Um, Isn't Riverdale Pretty Little Liars? Uh, well, <laughs> honestly, it was black hoodie. I know. No, it was one of the reasons I, I read the script. Um, uh, there was a moment where it was at the CW, and there was a moment where they were considering not making it, and and Susan Rovner sent it to me. 
Um, and I loved the script, um, and, but there was a conversation about, it feels like we have this show in mm. um, yep. a completely different iteration. <laughs> but I have to say, I, um, I, I, I love where they've taken it. I think it does, um, it has a different tone than PLL. I think it owes a great debt to PLL. Um, but I find the show super entertaining, and I think Greg Berlant is really talented. I'm just kidding. I'm sure it's great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right, let's go here. Let's go right here in the middle. The mic's coming to you. Hi. So I'm an older millennial. I fall into that possibly exennial trend. Um, I've been watching Freeform slash ABC Family. I loved Greek back in the day. It was one of my favorite shows. And in this world of a uh, reboot, nostalgia is almost its own brand. Is there anything old that you guys would want to bring back or anything that you wish maybe was still on or could give new eyes to a new generation? What do you wish we would most bring back? I loved Greek. <laughs> <laughs> or any of the showrunners? Is there anything you would love, just as fan of television, something you would love to see? I, but there's a lot of shows that were popular in the 70s that I feel like are so relevant now. I feel like you could completely rebuild so many of those Norman Lear shows. Yeah. I, it's not that old, but I miss Six Feet Under. That was my favorite show of all time. So if in any world they would want to reboot that show, I would, like, in a hot minute, jump to, to do that. And the West Wing. And oh the West God. Wing, yeah. <laughs> my daughter's over there mouthing West Wing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah we need that. Come on, Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> Anybody else? Here, we'll go right here. Yeah, yeah. Raise your hand. All right. Um, is it hard dealing with fan response when you cancel a show that's super popular like Shadowhunters? It is heartbreaking. Like, how, do you, how do you guys deal with that? It's heartbreaking. It really is. Not that anybody should feel sorry for us. We have, we have, we have great jobs, but sometimes it's really, really hard. Um, Shadowhunters in particular um, fosters. Um, um, our, our fans have a lot of feelings and when you, are, when you have the privilege of uh, working in a place where shows really matter to the audience, you get to hear, you get all those feelings and all that sadness and it is a terrible feeling to feel like you're letting the fans down. There's also sadly almost never a moment where everybody thinks the show should end. And so no matter when you do it in its life cycle, people are sad and it's great that people are attached we adore that they are attached and then it, as Gary said it just feels rotten to let people down and there's not a lot you can do about it other than just kind of you hang in and hope we're going to give them something new they're going to fall in love with too. Alright. Anybody else? Here. We'll go right here. The mic is coming. <laughs> um, looking at some of the new stuff that you guys have picked up recently like the um, alternate history witch thing and the like uh, <laughs> That's the title. Cleopatra. <laughs> Stuff. I mean, it just—it seems inherently riskier. And was that a, a conscious decision? What are you most excited about, kind of coming up? We're trying to get fired. <laughs> um, every one of these shows represented a risk, and uh, I feel like if we aren't taking risks each time we go out there, then we um, we aren't doing our jobs. Um, so if, if, if it smacks of the familiar when you hear about it, then, um, then I, I feel like we're doing something wrong. And, and even when we're doing a spinoff, you will see when you see Good Trouble and The Perfectionists that they are taking new risks and doing new things and don't feel like repackaged versions of their original um, parents. So um, the, the witch thing, the alternate history witch thing, which... Is, <laughs> We came up, the other day we were sitting around trying to come up with a title, because it was originally called Motherland, um, created by Elliot Lawrence, who created Claws for TNT, and then Sharon Horgan um, launched a show called Motherland, and so we're searching currently for a new title, 100 bucks to anyone that can come up with one. And we were saying, the working title should be Alice. <laughs> I like witches, bitches. <laughs> We could be fishes, bitches. <laughs> I smell a crossover. I, I feel like on, we were talking about this, Lucy Hell and I were talking about this the other day. Like, we feel like we, Pretty Liars, owned the word bitches in the way that, that, that we took it back, right? And now it's like, hey, bitch, how you doing? It's like, it's, that's, a, that's a cultural thing that happened on the show. And also we take credit for the shush emoji. Right. I feel like we should go to this side. Yeah, sure. Right here. And this amazing shirt. 
Um, I am all for millennial programming, obviously. Uh, but as Gen Z becomes arguably even more active in our community, what is kind of next for you guys, for them, and everything that they bring to the table? Um, well, we uh, are super proud of a show that we launched in January called Grownish. Um, <laughs> um, and they're busy back in the writer's room, so no one uh, from Gronish could be here today. And Yara Shahidi is very busy setting the entire world on fire. <laughs> um, so she couldn't be here today. But that is a decidedly Gen Z lens. Um, and we are having so much fun with those stories and those characters. And I, I just heard the season two pitch, and I, it's going to top even season one. I, I can't wait for the world to see it. Oh. I mean, even for the showrunners, is that something that you all like think about in conversations you have of like, you know, we're targeting millennials, but there is also this other generation. I don't know how different they are, but. Well, we had Jude on the Fosters, and so we really got to explore a lot of that through him. You know, this, this young foster child who became adopted, who started to dis discover his sexuality on the show. So we really got to, dis got to step that out along the way. And so he was our, our Gen Z lens. Yeah. And have the first teen gay kiss in the history of television. Yeah, I'm not. that's true. As you know, as a person who lives in the world, right, the generational divides are a little weird, right? Because no, nobody is really just one thing or the other. And I think per uh, cool shit for baller women, the cool part, right, is about being current. And so I think anticipating what's coming is a crucial part of what we all do. And some of that is, the, is a generational thing. A lot of that's just also understanding what's going on in society and that has to feed all the shows as they move forward. So I think we try to keep an ear out for that constantly. And I think it just gives us permission to be more outspoken and louder and prouder and all of those things because that's what the, that generation represents. They are so loud right now and they are so fighting for all of us. And it is the most inspiring thing I've seen in such a long time. So I think we all get to, to explore different kinds of stories and braver stories because of them, really. All right. All right let's go all the way in the back here in the stripe. <laughs> so I think we've all heard about the fact that um, supposedly millennials don't watch television, <laughs> which I am thrilled seeing the makeup of this festival to completely disprove. But we do know that people are consuming shows in different ways than they have before. So I'm curious to know, as you're crafting your storytelling, are you thinking about how people may be viewing? That's a great I mean, question. That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, uh, just the other day, I was looking at a VFX shot of a text coming up on screen, and I was like, okay, when I used to watch television, I was watching it on a big TV, but it's like I'm watching the cut on my phone and I'm seeing that I can't see it on my phone. I'm like, everybody else is watching this on their phone. And so if I can't see it on my phone, that's how they're going to be watching it. And so I think about like little moments like that. To be fair, I do have an iPhone 5, so <laughs> I've made my choice. Um, but I do think about like moments like that, that people are going to be looking at it in that way, just in a very specific technical sense. And they still are watching television, because I will say our finale was the number one cable scripted show of the night on Wednesday night. So they're still... They're still doing it, you know? But yes, it is something that we really need to pay attention to, and, and it is things like that, you're right, that we have to technically keep our eye on. It's also just, I mean, for us who do the business part of the world, it is paying attention to all the places people watch. And, you know, networks were woven together way back when, when there were three of them of disparate stations. You had to kind of assemble the way you got an audience. And I think we are creating a different version of a network at this moment in time. It includes Hulu, and it includes our app, and it includes all the other places that people watch all these shows. And I think we have to be just as proud when they watch over here as when they watch over there, because it's the shows we love, and our network is just a little more virtual than it used to be. And it feels fine. All right, I think we've got our next question. I've noticed you guys like don't have a ton of reality TV, and I've always wondered: is that like a conscious decision? Like, do you want to stay scripted, or are you guys just that's just kind of what happened? They tried. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we tried. <laughs> I failed a lot. Yeah, my my first year that uh, that I got there three years ago, um, there was a strategy um, that I adopted that. Um, was more of a traditional cable strategy about putting on a lot of unscripted and just kind of seeing what stuck, and none of it stuck. And and we really we you know talked to our audience and asked you you know 
can we do, can we do this? Do you want to, um, our unscripted shows welcome here? And I think they said back to us, yes, but I, but, um, I think they have to be sort of crafted to feel like the narratives are strong and dramatic in the way that the scripted shows are. And so we become much, much choosier. Um, it's, it's funny that you should ask today because on Monday we are premiering our next unscripted series um, called Disney's Fairy Tale Weddings. And it's so good, by the way, you must watch. And the way we rolled that out was we experimented with it as a special first last spring. And it did gangbusters ratings, absolutely outperformed um, uh, what we thought it would show. do. Yeah, now, <laughs> and then we did it again at um, during 25 days of Christmas, and it it did extremely well. So we had the confidence to say, all right, our audience actually is really enjoying these stories, and so let's turn this into a TV series, and that launches Monday night, and hopefully it'll it'll continue to do well, and that feels like the better way for us to go into more unscripted programming. I think that show works in part because it's a really optimistic show. It's a celebration. It's not a real. It's not a snark fest, and I think. Our brand just doesn't do well when it tries to play, I think, in some of the places that our unscripted friends do very well in and people love it. It's just, that's not what they want of these guys. And I think we sort of have to have shows, if they're unscripted, that feel like they're companions. All right, I think we have time for like two more. Go for it. Um, so as like a millennial slash Gen Z, I'm like kind of in between both, um, who like would love to be where you guys are one day, like writing TV and producing TV and stuff. Like, what are any like tips that you have for like breaking into those kind of careers? I, I think for for me, it's write what you know. Write, write, write. You know, all you need is a pen and a paper or your iPhone for that matter. You know, just just keep writing. Finish things. Finish the projects you start. The hardest thing is finishing. And we're now in an era in which you can make your own stuff. You know, we have so much capabilities and, 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 you know, your phone can shoot a short film now. So write something and make it and just explore and get it seen and just make noise. You have to make a lot of noise nowadays. And I would have loved to have, you know, the kinds of things that you guys have now when I was a kid because I was so desperate to tell stories and I would put on the most obnoxious shows in my parents' backyard and like literally walk around the neighborhood and try to sell tickets and no one was buying. But I didn't give a shit, you know? So make stuff, do everything you can to make some noise. Also, if you live here in Austin, there's like a major film culture here, and there are probably internships, resources that you could tap into that could help, too. Oh, and don't be afraid of the shitty first draft, because we've all written horrible shitty first drafts and make you go like, oh, no, I should just walk away from this computer right now. Just then write the next draft and the next draft, and it'll get better and better. All right, last question. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we do a lot of that already. Yeah, we have a, um, um, not just Freeform, but Disney ABC Television um, has, a, has a really, really robust um, uh, diversity writers program, diversity directors program, where we recruit from all over the country um, young people who are trying to get into this business who do not have um, ordinary access. And then we have in, like really robust internship programs and um, uh, new talent nights and, and a lot of that. Because, you know, this channel has made its um, mark by, by introducing fresh voices. We, we look less for the people that have had, you know, 25 hits on other networks, and, and we are much happier when we are, are you know, um, our shows make stars. We don't need stars to come and do shows for us, both in front of and behind the camera. I'm actually going to tack on a last, last question. For each of you writers, I'm interested in how you got started. It seems like there's a lot of interest in people getting into this business. How did each of you? I took a really crazy how to pitch to Hollywood class with this guy, Bob Cosberg is his name. And it was like, literally, it was like, you sold stuff with the fewest words possible. Like, little. It's big in reverse. Like, that was, and I met my writing partner at the time, Roger Campbell, who has gone on to direct many Famous and Loves and Pretty Little Liars. And we just started writing. I'm, I'm self-taught. I bought a bunch of books, and I, I, I studied broadcasting in college, not, not, not writing for TV and film. I'm from a small town. I knew not a soul here. And I'm here, here to tell you, you can, you can still make it in Hollywood without having a relative or, or you know, a, a best buddy. You can just, just write. I think we wrote 12 scripts before we ever sold anything. So we just toughed it out. I, um, 
I feel like my career started through the divas, like the, the music divas, J-Lo and Madonna. The first script that I ever wrote, I was 22 years old, and um, it was about a young rock star who wanted to give up her life and move back home and, and find her family again. And I just really believed in it. And so at the time, Madonna had a building right off Little Santa Monica Boulevard called Maverick. She had her own company. And I stood out front of Maverick for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks until she finally showed up. And I had my script in hand, and I just went up to her. And she had her bodyguard, and the bodyguard literally put his hand out, and she said, no, it's okay. And I said, here, will you please read this? And she looked at me and she said, who the fuck do you think I am? <laughs> and I said, you're Madonna. <laughs> but I said, I think you'll really like this. And so she took it. And a couple of weeks later, I heard from them and they optioned it from me. This does not happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we ended up selling it to ABC. I, I was 24 by the time it finally sold. But then I thought I had made it. I was like, my career is set. This is it. I'm going to become a famous showrunner. No, cut to 15 years later. I'm still trying to do the thing. And finally, you know, ABC Family Freeform gave me my second shot. But, you know, you got to make noise. You got to take a chance. You got to get your stuff seen and get it made. I was an assistant. <laughs> uh, my story does not involve Madonna. Um, I was an assistant, and I, uh, I knew that I wanted to be a writer, and so I spent my weekends writing. And I just went to the library every weekend, and I wrote, and it was really hard because I was tired, and I was working really long hours. And um, eventually I uh, gave my script to an agent who said, this is great, but it's not good enough, and, but I see potential, and next time you write a script, then you can call me, and I will read it. And then I wrote another script, and he signed me, and... Uh, I started out in features and uh, wrote a lot, a lot of scripts, and the pile kept getting higher and higher and higher. Um, and eventually, I was accepted into the UCLA MFA screenwriting program. And while I was there, I entered my script in like a year-end student contest and didn't win the contest. But one of the judges worked for a company called Brillstein Gray, and they liked the script and ended up getting it, uh, getting me an agent, and it was set up at Miramax and ended up making the movie, which is crazy. <laughs> Roger and I would lie, too. We would, like, we get lists of agents, and because they do, agents all the time, like, go to these things where they're looking for material, and we had this cover letter that said, we met you at so-and-so, we told you our idea, you requested us to send it to you. <laughs> And then we'd get a rejection letter, and we went like we were like, "Oh my God, she read our script, right?" So it was working, and that's how we got our agent. So I hope what you take away is lie your way. Pretty well liars. <laughs> all right. Stand well, in front of the network. Yeah. Thank you all so much. Thank, Thank you, you guys. Thank you for joining us around the TV campfire. Stay tuned each Thursday for live releases from the festival, in addition to bonus content and exclusive interviews and new original series coming soon. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at ATXFestival and let us know what you think using our official hashtag, hashtag the TV Campfire. Please rate and subscribe to the TV Campfire on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Season 8 of ATX Festival will be June 6th through 9th, 2019. For more information on attending, visit www.atxfestival.com. <laughs>